Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. And welcome to the Common Bridge. Rich's guest today is Stephen P. Williams, who's a veteran author who lives in New York City. Now, he's written and ghostwritten many books, including his most recent one, Blockchain, The Next Everything, which he and Rich will be covering today. Steve's currently completing a book entitled Everlands, the story of his five-month journey into the heart of America during the summer and fall of COVID-2020. And he's also working on a documentary from that trip titled Postcards from the Pandemic. He was educated at Grinnell College and Stanford, and he has an MBA in sustainability from Bard College. I think you're really going to enjoy this today. So let's join Rich Helpy and Stephen P. Williams in conversation. Well, Stephen, welcome to the Common Bridge. We're really delighted that you could be with us today. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. And your book, Blockchain, The Next Everything, is such a great compilation about what blockchain is, where it stands today. It's kind of an A to Z primer. So yeah, whether this is the first time you're hearing about blockchain or perhaps you're an investor in Bitcoin or you're wondering where else can this technology go, recommend that you buy the book, Blockchain, The Next Everything by Stephen P. Williams. And Stephen, that's available Amazon, other outlets as well? Oh, yeah, it's available everywhere. It's an audio book and yeah, Kindle. Amazon, whatever. Great. Steve, a little bit about your background. Of course, we have a full bio out at richardhelpy.com. Our listeners like to know a little something about our guests. So where did you start life and and how did you get to this point of being a, a writer with uh, this, these kind of credentials? Well, as you can see, I have with the gray hair, I'm, I've been around a little bit, so I, I won't fill you in on every detail. But um, I was born in Colorado and grew up in Kansas. And um Knew from a very early age that I wanted to be a writer. I, I had been exposed to a lot of writers through my parents, and somehow it just clicked with me. So I, I ended up uh, moving to New York after a peripatetic life uh, when I was 26. And I've been here ever since working as a writer. And so my, my impetus as a writer has always been uh, I, I'm a very curious person, right? And so I'm a real generalist as a writer, and I just explore topics that appeal to me. And I had gone back to school in 2016 or so to uh, get an MBA in sustainability, which is another mm -hmm. thing I'm really interested in. And I came across the, the word blockchain, and something about it really piqued my interest, and I started looking into it. And was fascinated for all the applications for business. I wasn't so interested at, at the time in the cryptocurrency, which I'm very interested in now. But um, so I just studied self-taught. I mean, there was really no course you could take at that time on blockchain, very early stages. And uh, I decided to write a book because none of the books I read seemed to be friendly enough or helpful enough. They're either super complex or, or super way too simple. So I wrote the book, got it published, my agent sold it, and um, I'm the first editor who saw it, bought the book, even though he had never heard a word about it. He didn't know anything about blockchain. So I he thought never, that was wow. yeah, interesting because it's just an intriguing subject. You know? I was telling you before we went on recording, when I told people, well, I'm going to be doing my next show about blockchain, the reactions mm -hmm. were like, 
what is it? Never heard of it. And other people go, oh, uh, Bitcoin? And still other people's like, oh, good, because I need to know more about it. And, yes. and, and and maybe that's just a good place to start. So what is it? You did a great job in the book, by the way, I think, defining things. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the balance. The Well, this is the pro side, the con side. These things might happen. And it's going to be an exciting future, whichever way it goes. Mm-hmm. Is there a lay definition of what blockchain is and how it works? Yeah, I would say that first off, that a, a, the blockchain is basically like those green ledger books that your grandparents might have used at their store to write down. I mean, my grandmother was a farmer and she wrote down every single expense or income that she had in these green ledger books. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what a blockchain is, only it's it's digital, it's on the internet, and it's uh, immutable, meaning you can't go back and erase the entries. You can't change anything. It's Everything's recorded and public. This is on public blockchains. And um, so basically, it's it's a way of recording information. That sounds really basic and simple, but what it does is it frees up all kinds of applications for business, for society, you know, for money, for for all kinds of things, because it um, it allows you to trust what's happening without having to have it confirmed by an extra agent, like a banker or a stockbroker or an art dealer or a publisher, the information is is there and it's yours to access. So if you put something in a blockchain and mm-hmm. you, you have a code and so the, that information is locked and you want to transfer that to me, that ledger will decrement your ledger, add to my ledger. We don't need a third party to say who you are, whether there's enough things in that ledger or who I am and whether I have a place to receive it. We just go point to point or peer to peer. Am I getting close to that? Yeah, that's 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 close. Um, I would say that you do have to have a, a place to put it. The, like if you're transferring uh, a digital asset, if I'm transferring it to you, you would have to have a place to put that asset and the blockchain would record that. It, it um, But that's the only only place you're slightly off there. But yeah, so if I want to, uh, I mean, maybe the easiest way to look at that is with transferring money. Okay. Um, so today I transferred some money into, um, uh, that was, let me try, I want to try to keep this as simple as possible. With When you're using money on the blockchain, it's called cryptocurrency. It's usually, uh, most people call it um, Bitcoin. Or most most people are most familiar with that, but there are also others like Ethereum is a very very important coin, and then there are thousands of other coins, and you can create one yourself if you want to. But when you want to transfer some of that money to someone else, you type in their wallet address, and a wallet is just like uh, a wallet that you keep in your pocket, only it's a digital repository, and it's all yours. You control it. You have the these things called keys that give you access to it. And those are private to you. So you would um, you would give me the public key to your wallet and I would type that into a, a website and click how much money I wanted to send you. And it would find its way to your wallet and that transaction would be recorded on the blockchain. So everyone could see it. They might not know it was you and it was me, but everyone can see that that asset went to your wallet. Does that make sense? That makes all the sense in the world. And 
with blockchain, I don't have to send it through Zelle or a wire transfer or a third party. It's No, it's all done. So if it's done, uh, especially through Ethereum, there are Ethereum is, or they're called Ether, the coins. They're um, programmable money so that they have things called smart contracts that you can actually program them to do different things. Like we could say that if you wanted to give me uh, $20 to come on your podcast, then um, you could set a contract that would pay me as soon as I appeared on the contract, mm-hmm. would pay my wallet. and We wouldn't even have to discuss it. So this morning I sent some money to an exchange because I or sent some ether to an exchange because I want to cash it out into dollars to pay taxes on that money because I earned that money. So um, I just typed, you know, information from a private wallet that I had, clicked a button, it went through blockchain, was certified by people on that blockchain or machines on that blockchain who guarantee that this transaction is happening. And then it arrived in, in my account. And the same thing will happen when I trade that in for U.S. dollars. It'll all be recorded each step of the way. So that's a really important um, function. And it's, it's, it's like a, right now uh, we use a two-step accounting method that was invented in the 16th century in Italy. And this is basically a three-step accounting method because it's it's verifiable by another step so that's a that's a big innovation that is a huge innovation and um one of the things that you speak about in your book is about decentralizing control and Mm -hmm. what a profound shift in thinking as i started imagining all of the different control points. Take me through your discovery process as you had that realization that this, what this is about, and you know, maybe what could the future look like if blockchain right. reaches its zenith? So this is what really drew me to the technology. Um, I guess I'm, I'm nat- naturally anti-political, not apolitical, but I guess I, I wouldn't, I don't know how I would define myself as a political creature in, in the United States, but I, I definitely don't believe in control, right? I think that people should be pretty free to to do a lot of things. Well, at the same time, I know that there are good reasons to wear seatbelts, take vaccines and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the decentralized nature of this, um, what appealed to me was that there, in more and more, I feel, with transactions you have with credit card companies, with um, with banks, with art dealers, with all kinds of things, there are, there are people who are kind of skimming money all along the way. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it feel like that? If you if you oh, sell sure. a house, you sell a house, you get uh, a friend of mine sold an apartment recently, and she was with I don't remember which person in in the chain of selling that house, but she noticed they'd made a four thousand dollar mistake. Right? She would have had to pay four thousand dollars more, and it was all because this person wasn't paying attention. And there are just like so many people involved with with handling your money and your property and your digital assets that um, being decentralized removes a lot of those intermediaries and and people who control, you know, the gatekeepers who decide what is good, what is bad. I mean, if you if you use uh, I don't mean to just continue talking about money, but if you use like Chase Bank, which I do. 
they can stop transactions if they're suspicious of them, or they can make you go pay taxes on something. You know, they because in a way you you lose a lot of your agency. You know, I mean, I think everyone should pay their taxes. I'm not advocating any kind of tax evasion. I think that's uh, you know a community responsibility we have. But so with decentralized system. Instead of having one person in the middle or one business in the middle or church or government or whatever in the middle that feeds out the rules and tells everyone what is proper and what to do, you have a community of people. Like You can imagine it like stars in the sky. Mm -hmm. You look up into the uh, heavens, you see stars everywhere, and then imagine they're all connected by lines, right? And um, this is this is kind of one of the first, uh, not a vision, but a first... Uh, visual uh, uh, interpretation of blockchain that I had early on. You just imagine all those stars connected and they can all communicate with each other and they can all uh, make decisions together as a group rather than just having the Milky Way or the Big Dipper or whatever make all the decisions. So um, what that can mean is that there are companies and there are thousands of them already called distributed autonomous organizations. So these are uh, especially popular in something called decentralized finance, which is a, a rapidly growing uh, part of part of the digital economy right now. And that's that, so with that the, you refer to DAOs. Yeah, DAO. DAO. Yeah, right. Not to be confused with DAO, Chinese Taoism, but it, it sounds kind of similar. So these are decentralized companies that might not. Um, they, that would have no uh, controlling authority. Like there's no one owns them. Everyone who participates in them owns them. And so you uh, might join a, a DAO that is uh, purchasing, say, digital art. That's an e easy way to look at it. So they purchase digital art with the idea of making a profit from it, just as a consortium of gallery dealers might might do that with a mm -hmm. physical object. And But to join it, you don't have to show that, oh, I'm Stephen Williams and I understand the art world and I was educated here and I did this and all that. All you have to do is show that you have the minimum investment required to enter this DAO. You don't even need to give your name. You just give your, your uh, wallet address, right? And you put your 32 Ether tokens or your three Bitcoins or whatever into this fund. And then... Together, you all will make decisions. Someone will make a proposal. I say we buy this digital Picasso painting that's $5 million, and I think it will be worth $20 million in two years. And you guys all decide, uh, all the nodes or all the participants in this DAO decide whether or not to buy that as an investment and then you know resell it. And so it's a really interesting way to, to do business, and it... Um, opens business to a lot of people who are not considered qualified right now. You know, to be a certified investor, you have to have a certain amount of right. liquid assets. You have to, basically, the, the government is saying, show us that you're a big boy and you can play with the big boys in the financial field. And I think that's ridiculous. I think it's absurd. And uh, I think that anyone should be able to invest uh, their money as they see fit even if it's just $20 or if it's $20 million. And this makes that possible. It would go a long way toward a more egalitarian society uh, because mm -hmm. so many people are just locked out 
of you know some of the assets that have appreciated greatly in the last couple of years. You know, real estate, fine art are are two of those things. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm talking commercial real estate as well, investment real estate. There's so many people just locked out of that because they can't put together tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions. But yeah, they think that'd be a pretty good bet. This would be a good way to do that. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned in the book, too, that I really thought was a great takeaway, uh, the Facebook business model would be absolutely threatened by blockchain because Facebook couldn't control what got published, where it got published, and who could see it. It would be the everybody in the, the DAO, right? Would that, is, am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, a lot of these things, a lot of the, the, the ideas that I mentioned in the book are hopes right now. They're still hopes. And uh, Facebook is actually, you know, heavily interested in blockchain and it keeps threatening to create its own currency and do different things like that because they also want to, they don't want to miss out on this. But um, I would say that, yeah, there are publishing systems being set up right now that allow writers to be paid micropayments for what they do to distribute their uh, their articles and stuff in different ways. But none of them, the, the big problem, I would say, with blockchain, cryptocurrency, with the whole shebang right now is that the user interface is still not easy to use. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I find like a real tragedy. And in the book, I advocate for bringing more artists, designers, and and systems thinkers into the field to to make this stuff accessible. You know, the UX is just not not good for most of these. So, Stephen, one of the things that I found fascinating about your book, it's almost like a chain of custody. You, you had an example about palm oil nuts and how you knew that things were actually what they were represented when they time they got to the consumer. And I looked this morning, my wife said, how about salmon? I said, great. And she said, I can go here. And I said, you know, I'm not sure where they get there. It was a big box place. I said, but we've got a guy local in town and we know where he sources his and he knows the people that he gets the salmon from. So, you know, go to, to Kevin and get that. I know we're paying a little bit more, but we know what we're getting. So kind of take us through how blockchain solves some of those issues when you go to the store that you know you're getting something from, for example, a sustainable producer versus someone that just stamps sustainably grown on it. So uh, yeah, that's a a great question and a really interesting uh, aspect of blockchain. I want to start though by saying that you can tell a lie and put it on a, on a blockchain. Uh, blockchain does not uh, correct, doesn't make evil people good, doesn't make lies the truth. You know, it does not detect any of that. It's a very uh, uh, amoral system. It's just technology. So that said, though, it does leave room for good actors, certified people, to record the source of their goods and to have that pass through the, the, the chain of the supply chain. So, for instance, and uh, the idea I had was a palm oil producer who is, um, you know, making uh, environmentally safe palm oil, often it's very destructive uh, enterprise, could certify that that their palm oil is environmentally sensitive, is good for the environment. 
and record that on the blockchain. And that batch of palm oil could be traced all the way through the blockchain. I mean, all the way through the supply chain to the store where you buy it. And you could check on your phone to see where it came from. And it does rely on the trust you have in the blockchain being accurate, but it also relies on the trusting partners who are participating in that blockchain. So there's still room for you know bad actors, but it's it's much more difficult. Plus, if a supplier were to make a false claim, that false claim would be permanently recorded on the blockchain. So their nefarious nature would be permanent. People would see it anytime. So I think it's really interesting in that way. Walmart right now uses blockchain to trace the source of lettuce that, that they sell and what they and other other goods. What they hope is that this allows them. There was a romaine uh, lettuce scare a couple of years ago where Listeria, yeah, I yeah, that. Listeria, and half the country was told not to eat romaine lettuce from from Walmart or from a certain supplier. And with blockchain, rather than having to ban the entire production of romaine lettuce for a certain period of time, uh, you'd be able to look at the packaging, the, find the source of that lettuce. I mean, Walmart would do this, find the source of that lettuce and shut that down and quit selling those particular items. So it, it can be very helpful in a lot of different situations like that. We touched a little bit earlier on you know the Facebook business model mm-hmm. that you know, really lets the Facebook company decide, you know, whether they like my photo, whether they like what I have to say, whether they like my source. It's a centralized power. And that we're seeing, you know, the edges of that begin to fray a bit right now. You know, not to get into the whole thing about who deserves to be deplatformed or not, but you and I could agree to join a blockchain uh, of our own to exchange our, our updates of our lives and our family photos and such if we wish to, or to discuss you know, politics or the economy or anything we wish to. And as anybody that we let into that blockchain would be able to do that. And we didn't have to answer to a central authority, which I thought was a fascinating part of your writing. Yeah, you know, I think what you're, what you're saying is true. And um, the, the thing, you, you brought up a point that I think is really important. There are private blockchains Mm-hmm. private enterprise blockchains and public blockchains. So um, in the case of doing a social media app, you'd probably want to be using a public blockchain so that their private blockchains do have controls. Whoever sets them up can control who enters and who doesn't. But uh, a public blockchain you know, would definitely um, allow for people to express their opinions and, and um, have some accountability for what they're saying. Um, I fear that the human nature with social media might get in the way of um, a beautiful social media site, even if it's on blockchain. That's that's my idea. And there haven't been any that have really taken off so far. Again, I think it's a lot of it with the user experience. It's hard to 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 use these things. I and mean, you have to have some knowledge of, of coins and tokens. Yeah, you know, look, I understand is that every time a new technology is introduced into society, it takes a while before we find out what's polite and what's impolite about it. And right. <laughs> you know, where it can be abused. And like I don't know this to be true, but I'm wondering if in a day of our grandfathers or great grandfathers, you know, calling on the telephone for an appointment might have just been really poor manners. You know, should have mm-hmm. been 
you know, dear Mr. Williams, I should like to call on you at two o'clock <laughs> next next Tuesday. And, you know, right. you would write back something like that. But who knows? Another part of the uh, book that I enjoyed so much is that you did contrast, you know, what could be the upside with what could be the downside, which could be you know something that just kind of loses steam and ends. One of the things you talk about is a, a D app or a DAPP, a distributed application, mm-hmm. having no intermediary or broker. We talked a little bit earlier about fractionalized ownership, preserving the truth, exchanging money, letting people own their own data. The one thing in there that I wasn't clear about was the personal ID that how do we know who's putting what into the blockchain? I mean, could I just get, could I be identified eight different ways on the same blockchain or would there be some control that they, that they know it's me? Well, so you're, you're identified by a, a, a code, by a, a long string of numbers, right? You aren't identified by your name. You can associate your name with that code so that it's, it's public, that people know that that's you, or you can keep it anonymous. Most people would keep it anonymous. On my uh, wallet, the wallet that I use, my name is not associated with it. But um, there, and for no particular reason, honestly, you can do um, investigative work and figure out who is making transactions. Though, like you can, every transaction is recorded on the blockchain, various blockchains. For the Ethereum blockchain, you can go to um, EtherCast.com and look at what everything that is is published on the blockchain. Right, so you could see that this one wallet is doing this transaction it's also doing another transaction with this other person and if you're a smart you know private eye type of person you can figure out eventually who who that person is behind that wallet so there are ways to you know to get around it and figure out who's doing what for sure one thing that i think we ought to talk about is some of the like the decentralized um, financing systems and the you mm-hmm. know the, the the whole issue like what's money and is this a better way to do money and means of exchange and i think you mentioned something am i getting the acronym right nfts yeah okay. nfts what, are what are those well these are just an incredible technology that um first became known to me about three years ago two and a half three years ago and um what it is is it's a way of establishing digital ownership of a digital property. It can also apply to physical properties, but I'll stick to digital for right now. So that means that you can own uh, the, uh, it's a a hard thing for people to grasp, I think at first, or for many people. Let's say that I have, I create a work of art online, right? It's uh, a bunch of lines and colors and um, I, Anyone can copy it because you can do a screen grab of that picture and copy it and claim it's yours and everything. But if I register that as an NFT on the blockchain, then there's a record that this is the first use of that digital image, right? It's almost like an artist's proof where they might have 100 different prints of the exact same artwork and they label them one, two, Mm -hmm. three, four, five. You can prove that you own number one. So a lot of people have serious doubts that anyone will value that form of ownership, that owning the first of an image that anyone could reproduce is valuable. 
but this year has been proven to be extraordinarily valuable. And um, people, the NFT market in artworks is has exploded. It's billions of dollars are being spent on this stuff. There was one artwork that sold um, by a guy named Beeple for $69 million at Sotheby's that was an NFT. And so it's a really interesting way to register artworks. It's also a way just to give objects and digital um, assets identities. And so people are using NFTs. Also, if you want me to explain NFTs a little more, I don't want to jump ahead. No, please. Um, I, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe to... maybe a, a little bit in depth because I, I'm tracking you. Um, yeah. That the NFT is represents an object, almost like a copyright. And and I, I do have a, I'm going to put this question in in case it's part of the same answer you know, like music. So if I wrote a song and I said, look, I want to know this is my song and no one's going to steal it or make a derivative work from it. I want to be able to put it out there and prove that I was the guy that made it. Right. Is that kind of where we're going with these things? That could, that's definitely a use case. And that would be time stamped and, um, and noted on, on the blockchain. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a way of showing, of securing provenance of any, um, you know, any object. You, now provenance is determined by pieces of paper, lawyers' offices, uh, a Manila envelope traveling around the world. You know, it's 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 when you think about it, it's really like very old fashioned. Mm-hmm. So if you can if you can uh, have an object registered on the blockchain, uh, no one can challenge it that it was that that you put that there at this certain point. Um, you know, it's 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 immutable. It's all there. Yeah. And with physical objects, there are ways of of photographing objects or artwork that um, will capture that object in a 360-degree view, and you you attach that to a code which is registered on the blockchain. The actual object or image is not registered on the blockchain. Then, if somebody tries to claim that they own that, you could have the same camera look at their objects and would be able to tell you if it was the same one that you registered or if they had made a, a counterfeit. Now counterfeit in, in our world right now, I and mean, some people estimate that 50% of artwork sold is counterfeit. Wow. So it's, it's a huge issue and something that people kind of accept, you know, in the art world and the ways that you get like paintings uh, certified is by going to experts who might be influenced by other collectors. I mean, it's it's all uh, it it's all, our systems are not as solid as we think, you know. And um, uh, blockchain is kind of exposing that, I think, in, in a lot of ways. I, I like your early comment about that. Uh, you know, it can't detect a lie, but if something is put in with enough observation, and it's a it's a source of truth. Uh, whether you know it's financial, you know music, artwork, what have you, then there's going to be verifiability all the way through. You know whether you know food, something along the supply chain. You then you talk in your book about the concept of trust and trustless being the same, which I thought was a great point that you made. Would you just share with our listeners and viewers <laughs> that concept? It was a great, great phrasing, by the way, in the book. Again. It's a, a blockchain, the next everything is the book. And of course, we're talking to the author, Stephen Williams. Stephen, what, what about trust and trustless are the same? How could that be? That's a concept that took me uh, 
took me a few days to kind of be comfortable with. And basically what it means is if, if something is trustworthy, you don't even have to think about trust, right? If it's a guaranteed trustworthy thing, then trust becomes meaningless because it is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, unlike with a human being, you, you might have to every day reassess whether that person is trustworthy. Indeed. And you yeah. talked about blockchains uh, and brands and and blockchain and that they're, the way they're using it in Shanghai in some really fascinating ways that helps people understand whether the brand is keeping their integrity. And again, I invite people to read the book. One area I wanted to get, to get into today, if we could, is voting. And sure. what I know about voting, again, we use a very archaic way of validating that that is a legitimate voter, mm-hmm. a signature, you know, from a time when people, you know, maybe lived their whole lives within seven miles of their birthplace. And you knew that, you know, that's Rich Helpy, that's Stephen P. Williams. And you know, they, they sign it and say, yeah, we've already seen you on the books. We're trying sure. to apply that in a highly mobile society uh, uh, that's much greater and we don't, we're not sure of the counts, or we've been led to believe by some parties that the counts aren't good and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, back around last Christmas, Khalil Byrd was on the Common Bridge talking about voting systems, and he referenced the company Votes, V-O-A-T-Z, about right. the early work they're doing with voting with blockchain. You also brought up Votes, the company, again, V-O-A-T-Z, and that the military's trying it for some people deployed outside the country. And mm-hmm. there's been some preliminary voting like, like Estonia and a referendum in Colombia. Can you just talk to us a little bit? What's the promise or potential of using blockchain for voting? Well, I think the, the potential, and it is promise and potential. It's not reality yet, I don't think. But, um, and I've thought about it a lot during this, all this turmoil over our recent election. Um, because basically it seems like there are a lot of people who don't trust the current system. Mm-hmm. So with blockchain, uh, if you if you vote using your I- identifier, you can always check on the blockchain and see how your vote was cast. Um, it It is immutable. It can't be changed. You know, there are a lot of aspects of it that are very, very secure. So that's the the promise of it is that people could simply vote using their telephone or their computer, be very easy. Um, everything would be totaled immediately. You know, you could do the you wouldn't have to wait weeks to find out who won. So all that is is really great. The problem with it is that people don't trust. I don't think trust blockchains yet. The general public, it's hard to use the interfaces. Even the votes interfaces, I think, are. are you know, you have to take some steps to be able to do that, um, which is already, if, if people are saying that it's difficult for some people to, um, you know, to have an ID or to show up at a certain time, or, you know, there are all kinds of impediments. Um, I don't know that you want to be adding impediments right now to that. So there are some drawbacks. Some people say that uh, it opens the system to being hacked and, um, you know, the vote, voting system, which is a fear that a lot of people already have. So I think it shows incredible promise. I wouldn't be surprised if within five or 10 years, we, we are voting that way. But I think for now, it seems to me that the best solution is to have paper ballots that can be counted and confirmed, um, just given the level of paranoia that people have. 
And there's certainly no short supply of paranoia. No, but I I do like what the the, the story uh, in your book about the military that were offshore to be able to vote in a West Virginia election. Yeah, it's great. If, you know, identified with a thumbprint, so you're registered on your blockchain with your thumbprint, right. which you know everybody can can get one of those. The votes can be verified, and you know the ID goes one direction, the the vote goes another. You can see your ballot and see how it was recorded. No, nobody can see that that's your ballot, but they can see that you did vote. Yeah. Votes would be tallied instantly. There couldn't be voter fraud, uh, but it does require technology. It requires access to high-speed internet. Again, I think the promise is there. I think the bigger question is going to be, do we have the will to get to elections with that level of integrity? I think we will, honestly. And if you look at this infrastructure bill, which looks like it's going to pass, there's a, uh, something really great in that, which is uh, trying to provide high-speed internet access to rural areas in the United States. And uh, imagine what a transformation that will be for people using blockchain, for people voting, for cryptocurrency, for everything like that. When uh, somebody in rural Idaho has access to high-speed internet, I think it's going to change everything. And that seems like it will happen in the next few years. I share your enthusiasm for that kind of a world. And when we think about the pace of change, it's not something we can imagine. I may have mentioned this on the show before, but when the Wright brothers flew, all four of my grandparents were alive and two of them were adults. Wow. When Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, all four of them were still alive. I don't think they said, oh, you know, look, the Wright brothers flew... 30 yards, six feet off the ground. So I guess we're going to the moon. You know? <laughs> right. And here we are with this pace of change, screaming along with a nascent technology that may give rise to a much better world. And certainly there will be bad actors that try to exploit it. But I think the more we learn about it, the better chance we have of a good outcome. For sure. Uh, I mean, we're at the infant stage of... Uh, you know, digital technology and blockchain. And uh, I remember in the 90s, I was walking on Fifth Avenue. I looked up, I saw a bus that had a, it had a URL, you know, mm -hmm. a, a, like an address, internet address on the side of it. And I had no idea what I was looking at. And I was so excited by that because I knew it was something really important. And it took many years for that to be, for the World Wide Web to become a everyday thing. And uh, I think that's true of blockchain too. And in a few more years, you won't even you'll be using it, but you won't you won't be a conscious of it. It won't be a big thing. Nobody's going to be selling orange juice produced on the blockchain or something like that. It'll just be in the background doing a lot of lot of good things. Yeah, and one of the earlier points you made in your book was that you know Amazon Web Services now have a build your own blockchain. Right. It's such great technology. There's going to be you know like anything new, there'll be some things that won't work, and right. I think we'll have some really remarkable successes. And I share your feeling because as I'm reaching this stage of life and, you know, it was like, oh, hey, you need a QR code, dad or, or grandpa. Uh, <laughs> like, All right. I can, I've got that. But the pace uh, that it moves is is really remarkable. Um, and, and think about an age now where we want to watch a movie in our home and we have long digital libraries. And if it doesn't like start instantly, we're, we're, we're amazed. <laughs> We're throwing, yeah, throwing popcorn at the TV. Right? Yeah, exactly. So that was an unimaginable situation during my lifetime. 
Stephen, this has been a great conversation. And again, I do want to recommend the book. It's read that you can do in bite-sized chunks. I read it on Kindle. I understand in print, it's about 188 pages. We'll have a graphic up about the book. And I just encourage my readers to become educated about this very exciting technology because eventually, if not already, there's going to be political forces and there's going to be reporting organizations that are going to try to scare you because the other guys are going to use it to harm you. And this, and if you understand it, you'll know to shut out all that noise, which is, of course, a very important part of what we do on the Common Bridge. Um, hmm. Get educated, stay away from the partisanship, stay away from the talking points, and become your own independent thinker. Sovereign citizen is what I like to call it. Yeah. And it is possible if we put these tools together for use, for the common bridge, for the common interests amongst us. And there's far less that divides us than unites us. And we need to be talking to each other. And this is another great technology to do that with. Stephen, we could probably go on for a couple hours, but <laughs> what is it that we didn't cover today that we probably should have before we wrap up today? That people who... Uh invested in ether or cryptocurrency about a year ago mm -hmm. would uh have made so much money by this month that it, it would astound them i would just encourage people to look at the the way that uh cryptocurrency goes up and down but steadily up the main cryptocurrencies and i think it's really interesting and again it's accessible to everyone you can invest 15 cents in cryptocurrency you don't have to invest $100,000. Any closing thoughts for our audience today? Yeah, one very important thought is uh, there are environmental consequences to, to blockchain and cryptocurrency. And some chains are moving very rapidly. And some chains are already there uh, to reducing electricity consumption by 90%. Ethereum is probably the, the best example of that right now. So you do have choices you can make that are more beneficial to society than other choices. Very important point. Um, really important. Yeah. You know, given what we're dealing with now with uh, climate and climate action, mm -hmm. uh, we've had a couple of climatologists on the Common Bridge, and they've laid out what they think the common interest is and how we can deal with these issues today. This is Rich Helby with our guest Stephen P. Williams, author of Blockchain, The Next Everything. And until next time, Rich Helpy signing off on The Common Bridge. The Common Bridge, of course, available on wherever you get your podcasts, YouTube TV, as well as richardhelpy.com. So long, everyone. See you next time. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.